Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, will you turn with me this morning to a brand new book? I don't even think you have to turn to the table of contents. <laughs> I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. I was uh, studying this this past week and didn't realize it, but in the whole New Testament, I have never preached fully out of Marth, uh, Matthew Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and 2 Corinthians. I've preached out of the rest of them, and so this is just a real joy for me. I've always wanted to preach through it. I've preached from it, but I've never preached through it, never studied it completely, and taught it as a complete book. So I'm looking forward to seeing what God's going to teach us. You know that when we turn into a book of any kind, when we start studying, that is God's invitation for us to enter in so that he can have a message for each of us, both individually and corporately. And it's a beautiful thing. Uh, today, we're going to start talking about a look at the book. But I hate to tell you, we're not quite going to get to the book. <laughs> we're going to look at the book, <laughs> and we're going to get right up to 2 Corinthians. We'll pick that up the next time. God spoke to us in Habakkuk. I just can't wait to see what he's going to say to us in 2 Corinthians. Now, to introduce 2 Corinthians, we have to go back and be sure we understand the connection between Paul, the city of Corinth, and the believers there at the church of Corinth. It is in the book of Acts, chapter 18, that we find that Paul, actually the Lord using him, founded the church there at Corinth. Let me read from you some verses from Acts, chapter 18, and verse 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth, speaking of Paul. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade. Now, many people do not understand. The Apostle Paul championed the fact that a, a man that preached the word should be honored with being taken care of. But Paul was an exception to the rule. Paul didn't want to take anything for what he did, so therefore he was, he was a tent maker by trade. That's what he's talking about here. He stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the Sabbath, or the synagogue rather, every Sabbath, and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. 
But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Verse 7, Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, and this is fascinating, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So that little church began, and the first convert was the leader of the synagogue by the name of Crispus. Now, the book of 1 Corinthians that we have in our Bible is actually the second letter that Paul wrote to these Corinthian believers. Chapter 1, or chapter 5, rather, of 1 Corinthians, verse 9, references this first letter that was lost when he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, and refers to a letter that has been lost. So 1 Corinthians was his, actually his second instructional letter to these Corinthian believers. Now, I want to interject something here about the New Testament evangelists. They're not like what we think of evangelism today. In fact, they had much more depth. They had much more responsibility. They didn't just see people come to know Christ and move on to somebody else and leave that person to whoever could help them. They sometimes stayed with them. The Apostle Paul did, especially at Ephesus, with up to two or more years. But if not, they continued to disciple them in God's Word. They wanted to make certain, they wanted to make certain that these people that had just come to know Christ were doctrinally sound and grounded in the message of grace. I wish we could grasp this responsibility of evangelism in the 21st century. Kind of like the old boy. He was out elk hunting. And he was about 10 miles out and he, from the camp. And he had in his scope that old herd bull. Not, not those little bitty bulls and satellite bulls. His, this was a herd bull. I mean, I've only seen one since I've been in New Mexico, and that was after dark, and I had to almost tie Jim Mathis in the back seat because he wanted to shoot it. And I said, you can't shoot them after dark. Take the flashlight off of your barrel. No, but it's a big, <laughs> it's a big animal. As a matter of fact, I've never seen anything that big. It took up the whole dirt road that was there. A big old seven by seven. And here's a guy, he's standing there, and he's got that thing in his scope. Ooh, got the, it's about a good shot, two, 250 yards. And him, and he's got a long-range rifle, the, the right shell. And he pushes the safety off, and he's just about ready to pull that trigger. And the guy that is with him leans over and whispers in his ear. He says, now remember, before you pull that trigger, it's 10 miles back to camp. Now, how many of you actually understood what I just said? Raise your hand. <laughs> Some of y'all just need to get a life. You don't realize what I'm talking about. Pulling the trigger is the easiest thing you do. That's when the responsibility starts, buddy. You've got about a 1,200-pound animal you're going to have to pack all the way back to the camp. And I wish we could understand that in evangelism. You don't shove a track down somebody's throat and ask them to pray a prayer and move on to the next one. That individual, when he becomes a believer, must be grounded in what the message of grace is all about. And that's what the New Testament evangelists would do. Nothing like the 20th century stuff that we see today. Paul was deeply concerned about the Corinthian church. And every letter that he would write would be instructional and doctrinal and trying to keep their feet on the ground. He was particularly concerned with their walk 
with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 tells us that Paul wrote the letter to deal with various problems that had come to him through a lady's family by the name of Chloe. We don't know much about her, but it says in verse 11, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 18 tells us he also wrote that first epistle that we have, rather. It's actually the second letter. He wrote the letter to head off the uh, skepticism about his being an apostle. Somebody's always questioning the apostle Paul as to what authority he really had in the church. And he faces this again in the last several chapters of 2 Corinthians. But he also wrote 1 Corinthians to answer questions that they had written to him because actually they were disciples of his, and now they wanted to know some things. And it says that in 1 Corinthians 7, 1. He says, now, concerning the things which you wrote. And so they had written him concerning many questions that they had. He also wrote to them to set up Timothy's visit. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17 talks about that. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 10 to 11, tells him that Timothy is probably on his way, but he was coming to see them. He also wanted to prepare them for his own visit. Paul couldn't wait to get back to see those Corinthian believers. And he was going to go from Ephesus to Macedonia and then go right straight down and visit with them. And he tells them that in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5 through 9. Now, we don't know much about Timothy's visit. We do know he sent Timothy to them. But we do know in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1, Timothy has come back and he's with Paul. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So he's there with him when he writes that second epistle. Evidently, when Timothy came back, he brought some very disturbing news about the, the believers there in Corinth. So instead of Paul's going to Macedonia, and then going down to visit with them, he set sail directly from Ephesus straight to Corinth to try to solve the problems that was happening there. In fact, the situation was so bad from what he heard from Timothy, he changed all of his plan. He was going to go to Corinth and then leave. He had some things he had to do in Macedonia. Then he was going to come back to Corinth and then come back to Ephesus because he needed at least two visits, he felt, to solve the situation. But when he got to Corinth... He ran into a personal attack by some individual. We don't know who that individual was. We don't know anything. We just know a little bit about it. But evidently, that individual was questioning the credibility of the Apostle Paul and the authority that he had in the church at that time. This is found in 2 Corinthians. It's sort of vague, but it's there. Chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. And then in chapter 7 and verse 12 of 2 Corinthians, it says, Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong. We don't know who that was. Nor for his cause that suffered the wrong, which was Paul himself, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Now, the thing that really grabbed Paul's heart was that the Christians there in Corinth did not take up for Paul when this man attacked him. That's always a, 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 a hurtful thing. It's when believers who know better will not stand up for the one who's being attacked. So instead of returning, he goes on to Macedonia, but instead of returning for that second visit that he felt was necessary, he goes straight back 
to Ephesus. Once he was back in Ephesus, he wrote a third letter to the church of Corinth, and evidently it was a scalding letter, a severe letter towards that church and the discipline he was bringing to them. From what we know, this letter called for the Corinthian church to take action on several things, but particularly to deal with the man that had caused him so much grief. This letter's lost. Not only that, we don't even know who took the letter to them. We, most people believe, and I'm one of them, that it was Titus, because we do know from 2 Corinthians 7, 14 through 16, that before Titus took the letter, Paul boasted about the Corinthians. He says, you know what? I believe this time they're going to come through. I just believe in my heart they're going to come through. He says that in chapter 7, 14 through 16. He says in verse 14, for if anything, I have boasted to him about you, talking to the Corinthians. I boasted to Titus about you long before he took the letter to you. I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. And Paul was so elated. He says, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. When Paul sent Titus with this letter to them, he couldn't wait to hear the report. He just couldn't wait to hear the report. He just knew they were going to respond. He was supposed to meet him in Macedonia, but he got so antsy he couldn't stand it. He went down to Troas and caught up with, with uh, Titus to find out the information. And Titus brought him a good report, and that blessed the Apostle Paul's heart. Second Corinthians is the joyful response to that report that Titus brought to him at Troas. So 2 Corinthians would be the fourth letter that Paul has written to these Corinthians, two of which have been lost. It's probably written about six months after he wrote 1 Corinthians. But today, what I want to do is not quite get into 2 Corinthians. I want to back up just a little bit. And there are two things that I want us to see. I think, I think we need to see something about Corinth and I think we need to see something about the believers in the Corinthian church. The early on, early on, we're going to see that things can change. Just like in Habakkuk in chapter 1, it wasn't very good. Chapter 3, we, we, we were blessed. It's going to be a very similar situation here. So first of all, let's look at the place called Corinth. I want you to feel like you're into this letter. You understand what's going on, who he's writing to, and what, who the people are all about. The place called Corinth. Scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot about Corinth, but history does. In fact, today, Corinth is a little insignificant city, but it's not insignificant historically. It's located about 45 miles southwest of Athens on a little isthmus. Now, that'll be a word that'll challenge some of us. What is an isthmus? An isthmus is a narrow strip of land that connects two large bodies of land. Now, geographically, you have to understand something. When Rome conquered Greece, they divided the country into two parts. There was the northern part and a southern part, and they were connected by this little isthmus, as you can see up there, hopefully, on that little map. Uh, Corinth was on the eastern side of this isthmus. Before Paul's day, Corinth had been destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C., then was rebuilt about 100 years later by Julius Caesar. When it was rebuilt, it was basically a Roman colony. 
It became the capital city of the Roman province, and you'll see this a lot. You'll see it in verse 1 of, of, chapter, uh, of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, and that's the, the place of called Achaia, Achaia. So Corinth was a very strategic city when we find it in Paul's time. It was a crossroads city made up of Greeks, uh, Roman officials, businessmen, uh, Near Eastern peoples, which included Jews. There were a whole lot of Jews in that area when, when this epistle was written. In ancient times, if you were traveling from the northern part of Greece to the southern part, you'd have to go right through Corinth, and it made it a very strategic city, a key city. In fact, ships that used to sail around the southern tip of Greece uh, stopped doing that because the Corinthians were so industrious in their, in their thinking. They said, hey, wait a minute. Why go all the way down there? Why don't you just come across our little isthmus? And they were going to build a canal, which didn't get built for centuries. But what they did, they built a road, and they put logs on it, and then they used slave labor to pull the ships across that little narrow piece of land. It became very, very strategic. Today, instead of this road, there's a huge canal. And we have stood there and looked at that canal, just a group of us that went over there last spring. And it's a huge canal that the ships can come right across from one side to the other. Now, this caused Corinth to become one of the wealthiest cities in Greece at that time. Now, another thing about Corinth concerned athletics. Now, uh, the Olympic Games began in Athens, and of course, they're very proud of that. I have a funny story that I'll never forget this. I know the Olympic Games were in Athens, <laughs> and you remember when it was the 200-year anniversary. It was supposed to be in 1996, but Atlanta got it that year instead of Athens, and there was a great animosity between the two, and I, didn't know, I knew nothing of this. I was in Alaska. I pay, I pay little attention sometimes, and I was coming from Alaska to Atlanta, Georgia, because I wanted to fly with my family. They went on to Chattanooga. I went on to Thessalonica, Greece. It was quite a trip. And I remember flying from Alaska through Salt Lake City to Atlanta. I'd been in the same shirt for a long time, <laughs> and it wasn't real pleasant. And so I went into the area there <laughs> at the concourse, and I found a little shop, and they were selling shirts. Now, you don't just go in and find a shirt my size, so I finally found one double extra large. And it said on it, Atlanta, home of the 1996 Olympics, and it had all this good stuff on it. Well, I did not know how that would irritate people. I had no idea. So I got on the plane headed towards Thessalonica. Well, we had to go through one place in Europe and then jump down to Thessaloniki, they call it. And I, so about an hour before we got there, I changed shirts in the, plane, in the, in the little restroom there, and I, I freshened up, and I said, oh, boy, this is great, clean shirt. And I got, off, <laughs> I got off of the plane, and when I got off the plane, everybody was looking at me like with contempt. I mean, hmm. And I'm thinking, I know. I know I freshened up. What is it? I didn't know what it was. And I got out to where the people were, and they met me. <laughs> and one of them got right in front of me, and one of them got right behind me because they had writing on the back of it, two, 200th anniversary. That wasn't really exciting. And so I, one got in front, and one got in back of me, and they walked me through the airport. They said, Wayne, this is not the shirt you want to wear over here at this time. Well, you never have to convince me. I know now that the Olympic Games began in Athens. But what a lot of people don't know is there were two sets of Olympic Games. One was in Athens, but the other one was called the Isthmian Games. And they were held at Corinth. In fact, 
most people, and I'm one of them, who believe that this is why Paul went over there to make tents because the people that came in for those Ithmian games would stay in tents. And it was a great opportunity for him to raise money for his ministry. And that's when he met Priscilla and Aquila. The people who, had, who attended these games came from all over the world. Well, it was there that uh, God decided to do a great work. Now, Corinth was prominent and wealthy in the world of that day. But now there's one more thing you need to know about Corinth to understand all these letters that Paul has written to Corinthians. It was morally decadent, morally decadent. It was known for its immoral temple that, that towered over the city. See, like most Greek cities, including Athens, they had an Acropolis. An Acropolis is a high place. Several of us, again, were there last spring and we stood and looked up at that Acropolis. It stood 2,000 feet up above sea level there because it's a coastal area. This Acropolis was for two things. One, up one was to defend the people in case of an attack. It was perfect because it was high and every, all, all those neighboring people could come up to the top and they could be defended. But the saddest use of this, of this Acropolis was that on top of it was a pagan temple and it involved the, the worst kind of immorality that you could ever imagine. It was a, a pagan temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. In that temple were 1,000 priestesses, or so they called themselves. Actually, they were prostitutes. Ritual temple prostitutes. Can you imagine? This was part of their pagan religion. At night, these women would come down off of that Acropolis, and they couldn't solicit on the street publicly. And so what they would do, they would put on the bottom of their sandals, follow me. They would walk around the city, and, the, and of course, the sailors and the foreigners and the businessmen saw that, and they followed them uh, into all kinds of immorality in the name of religion. Even in the pagan world of that day, Corinth was known for its moral corruption. There was a phrase that would be used only for people who, who, in, who, who delved into the most gross immorality, and it says, you behave like a Corinthian. And that was a Greek phrase that was only used for people who was in debauchery and immorality and drunkenness. Corinth was a very, very evil city. It was horribly depraved. But this is the good thing. Right in the middle of it was God's church. Isn't that funny how God does that? He just puts it right in the midst of darkness. He puts the light there. And it was begun by the Apostle Paul. These believers had been saved out of this pagan background. So you have to remember the pull that it was on them. In verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, either, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. And by the way, that doesn't mean that somebody doesn't drive a pickup truck and chew tobacco. That's not what it's talking about. You'll have to look that up for yourself. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But look at the next verse. He says, such were some of you. That's what they came out of. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now listen, even though they had been saved out of this kind of, of debauchery and this kind of life, the moral decay of the city was like a pull of gravity trying to suck them back under what they used to be in bondage to. 
He was always there pulling them back, trying to pull them down. The believers who were in Corinth had to live in this kind of garbage every day of their life. The worldly system around them, the wealth of the people, and then the immorality that consistently bombarded their lives. But here was their problem. The problem was that instead of the church being transformed by the grace of God, instead of the church letting Jesus be Jesus in them and reaching out into Corinth, Corinth got into the church. And that's where it began to get bad. And this is why some of the severity of Paul's letters can be understood. So the place called Corinth. But the second thing I want you to see, the people of the church of Corinth early on. Now remember, this is 1 Corinthians, early on. In the book of 1 Corinthians, we learn how the Corinthian believers were so affected by the worldly city of Corinth. I mean, they were enamored by some things. The essence of their spiritual problem can be found in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, if you'd like to turn there, verses 1, 2, and 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. So far, so good. That's all right. He says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Now, up until this point, he hasn't put any kind of pressure on them. There's nothing wrong with that. A baby is going to act like a baby. When you see somebody come to know Christ, they're going to act like babies. They don't know what to do. They have to grow up in the, in the faith. Uh, they, they need milk. They can't eat meat. I remember the first time when little Stephanie was little, and she just started walking, and I tried to give her something that I think it was a French fry or something that was real crunchy. And I remember Stephanie, my daughter, and my, my wife, Dinah, jumped all over and grabbed that thing out of her. And boy, Stephanie and I both looked at them and said, what are you doing? And they said she hadn't got any teeth. <laughs> she can't chew those types of things. She has to have milk. She has to have soft foods. There's nothing wrong with that. When a person comes to know Christ, he can't receive the, the meat of the Word of God. And, and not only that, a baby will attach themselves to flesh. You, whoever gave them birth, buddy, they're going to attach themselves like glue to that individual. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. But the essence of their spiritual problem comes out in the middle of verse 2. It says, but indeed, you are still not able to receive it. He said, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. So far, so good. But then he says, indeed, even now you are not yet able. That's a sad statement. I just got a picture of our two grandchildren, and, uh, and they're, they have their little heads together. And it's, oh, so precious. And I made it my desktop. You know, and I got a big old screen, 17-inch screen. It's so awesome. To, and when I turn it on, it's boom, and this makes me smile. This makes me smile. But you know what? I don't want that picture to stay the same. I want them to grow up. If in 10 years they still look like that, something's drastically wrong. You see, you want a child to grow up. These Corinthians had chosen intentionally to stay babies in the Lord. They wouldn't come out of the nursery. They wouldn't attach themselves to Christ. Instead, they did other things. It says in verse 3, for you are still fleshly. What that means is it's a mindset of buying into what man can do for God. You're still there. You, you still look at the, the worldly ideas around you. And the evidence was, he goes on to say, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? 
This jealousy and strife caused such division in the church, and it was seen in the way they viewed their pastors. This is so interesting to me. Some were Paul followers. He was the beginning pastor. He was, he was the first pastor. They liked Paul. They enjoyed Paul, and they attached themselves to him. Like babies always do, they'll attach themselves to a human being or to flesh. Some of them were like, they were not that way. They were of Apollos. That was the second pastor, and they attached themselves to him. Oh, we don't like Paul. He's too hard. We like Apollos. He's a whole lot sweeter. In verse 4, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, Paul says, are you not mere men? Men do this. They're men followers. Watch the people who go to the movies. They have a certain star they like, or a certain this, or a certain that. And they, and they attach themselves and find their identity in them. Well, like I said, this, among other things, caused great division in this Corinthian church. The Corinthian believers were enthralled with the wisdom of men. You put a bunch of them around the table, son, they could have a committee meeting on, on coming up with creative ideas of how they're going to help God out. And Paul had to address this problem, that you have to be renewed in your mind. You can't be thinking like you used to think in verses 18 through 31 of chapter 1. And I want to tell you, it's like reading the newspaper. I'm going to go through it with you in a minute. It's like reading the newspaper in the 21st century about men that have such creative abilities. Oh, look what I've done in the world, in the social world, in the secular world, in the, in the political world. How I've, how I've grown my company from nothing all the way to the top. Man, I can help God out. He really needs me to have him on his side. We can do things that God can't touch through the preaching of his word. To refute their wisdom, to refute the creative ways of men that they'd attached themselves to, Paul shows that God uses a foolish message and a foolish method that has continued to work throughout the centuries to accomplish their very salvation. This is so interesting to me. The message of Christ dying on the cross for our sin was the foolish message. And the foolish method of getting it across, guess what that is? Preaching. <laughs> God simply chose to do it that way. 1 Corinthians 1.18 begins this thinking. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, what, what Paul wanted them to understand is that God's not impressed with the wisdom of men. We have such creativity, but he's not impressed with it. God's only impressed when he looks at man and sees himself. And this Corinthian church needed to hear this. Verse 19 of chapter 1. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. In fact, he challenges them in verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe, Paul says? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then he says, for since in the wisdom of, the, of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. His examples, of course, were the Jew and the Gentile. He said, just look at both groups there. He says in verse 22, for indeed, Jews ask for a sign. You see, they have to see it, but it's only believed by faith. That's the problem. And then he says, on the other hand, the Greeks search for wisdom. They have to understand it. 
but it's known only by revelation. <laughs> and so the whole message is foolishness both to the Jew and to the Gentile. In verse 23, he says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Verse 24, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he turns it to their salvation. So let me just prove my point here. He says in verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. I bet that made them feel good. Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are. But Paul wanted them to know why God did it this way. And in verse 29, so that no man may what? Boast before God. Oh, listen carefully to what this church fell into. He reminds them that only through what Christ did, through his foolish message and through his foolish method, and really through his foolish man, were they believers themselves. He says in verse 30, but by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast how? In the Lord. And then Paul does something here. He defended why he was what he was and why he did what he did. In verse 1, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech. I didn't have a message other than the message or of wisdom. I didn't have these creative ideas of how to get it across. Proclaiming to you the testimony of God. That word superiority we need to understand today. It means that which is something down here that rises up and above the message of God's Word to where people, it draws attention to itself. And people get more enamored with that which has gotten above the Word of God than they do the Word of God. You know, we're living in a day, and I'm hearing it everywhere I go, and I want to make sure you know the difference of where we stand, where people are trying to be like the world to reach the world. And the Apostle Paul says, no, no, no. If they walk away from that with all the worldly ways in which you tried to reach the lost, they're going to only remember the worldly ways. It has become superior to the message that needs to be preached. God has been reaching people for a long time without all the help of man's wisdom and of man's creativity. I wish we could learn that. You know, our son Stephen and Ann, they're about to have their first child in April. And Stephen's a nervous wreck. And it's so cute and so fun to watch him. And finally one day I said, you know, Stephen, I almost want to comfort you. People have been having babies for a long time. It's just not a new thing. I mean, it's not something that you have to come up with to do something different. God doesn't need our help, folks. To the Corinthians, that's what Paul is saying. God does not need your help. You don't become like the world to reach the world. God has a foolish method, and God has a foolish message, and it's been working for generations. And Paul said, I'm going to honor that. Paul would never use anything that would cause people to walk away with that on their minds instead of the Word of God 
I remember being down in Florida years ago, and we walked on the beach. Diana loves the beach. I, I, I don't like the beach. I think the, my idea of going to the beach is getting in a nice room, shutting the curtains, turning the air conditioning on, finding a good movie, or going to sleep, one or the other. And so when we walked on the beach, we did it late because I didn't want them to think Shamu the whale had come back to life. <laughs> and we're walking down the beach, and here comes this girl with earphones on, and she's singing a Christian song. And I love my wife. Diana's so sweet. She said, now, she's a Christian. <laughs> I said, what was your first clue? I mean, she's singing to the top of her lungs these Christian songs. Had somebody on it, she was singing along with them. And Dinah just walked right up to her and she said, hey, how you doing? We're Christians. Are you a Christian? She said, yes. And she talked for 45 minutes about her church and all of its programs and never mentioned Christ. We're living in a day, folks, that people are more enamored with the church and how it does things rather than they are the message of God's Word. And Paul said, he said, I'm not going to do that. He said, God has given the message and it's proven. And God has given the method and it's proven. And I'm not moving from that because I want him to be the one that's remembered. Well, he says in verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, if you first read that, you might not understand it. The word crucified is in the perfect tense. Perfect tense in the Greek language mean, in this text particularly, something happened back here that was affecting Paul even in his preaching over here. Something happened back here, the crucifixion of Christ. See, it's the crucifixion of Christ that put us all to death. Do you understand that? Do we understand that? When you receive Jesus, you die, and you, he raises you to become a brand-new believer. And with that death, when all of our fleshly methods, all of our fleshly ideas, all of our worldly ways, when we received him as our Lord and Savior. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, in this old body, I don't live the same way I used to live. My religion depended upon my ideas. My religion depended upon my creativity. But not now. I just live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. You see what Paul's saying? There's nothing that he could contribute to the message of this world. And he wants the Corinthians to understand, I'm not going to give in and do it your way. I'm not going to do it. He said, I, my creativity is in poor contrast to what God's Word can do when it's preached. That's why he says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I, I, I'm going to be honest with you today. It took me a long time to come to the place to realize how weak and ineffective I really am in my flesh. It took me a long time because I was too full of Wayne. You know, Simon Peter walked away from his nets, but it was a long time before Simon Peter walked away from Simon Peter. And when we come to that place of realizing how weak we really are, that we don't have anything that can impress or help God out, it's then when we see our weakness, and it's then that we'll stand in the face of our responsibility and we'll tremble because we now understand if he doesn't do it, it doesn't get done. We're desperate for his power. Verse 4, he says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration." of the Spirit and power. But why? Why would, he, why would he go back and say this again? He already said it in the earlier chapter. In verse 5, he wants to make sure that they understood this. So that your faith would not rest on the what? 
the wisdom of men, the creativity of men, the, the ability for man to come up with something that would in some way try to help God out, that it would never rest on that, but on the what? The power of God. Well, the Corinthian church had an opportunity early on. Paul tried to tell them, you're buying into a system. You're buying into a, a, method, and a, a method and a message it's not of God. God knows what he's doing, and he's been doing it for a long time. They didn't get the picture. As a result of that, here's what happened in the church. When, you, when we're going to do it man's ways, this is what Paul says. He said, sin went undisciplined in the church in chapter 5. In chapter 6, there was such division that they were literally carrying each other into court. That old phrase, I'll see you in court, came right out of the Greek culture. And they dragged one another into court over something so trivial as money. Are you kidding before the pagans of the world. Chapter 7, their families were so upside down. Can you think of America now in the 21st century? What's the biggest problem we have is in the family. Why is it so destroyed? Because people will not come back to the power of God to do what he promises he will do. In chapter 8 through 10, they used the precious message of God's grace as a license to walk all over the weaker brother. In chapter 11, they desecrated the Lord's Supper. In chapter 12, they thought that anything that was emotional was spiritual. In chapter 13, they knew nothing of God's love. In chapter 14, they, their babbling in an unknown tongue was not only wrong, but the whole premise was off base because it was never to be for the believer. It was to be for the unbeliever if it was done correctly. In chapter 15, they didn't even believe the bodily resurrection of Christ. And in chapter 16, they knew nothing of the stewardship of their monies in God's kingdom. Wow. All because why? They would not yield themselves to Christ and trust his power and his message to do the work that he could do, not only in them, but in others. Their faith rested on the wisdom and the creativity of men instead of on Christ. The proof of their immaturity was in the pudding being seen all the way through. The, 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 that second letter he wrote, which was called 1 Corinthians. So just to give you a background, we understand now the place called Corinth wasn't a good place to live. Not a whole lot different than Albuquerque would be today. You know that we're the 14th most dangerous city to live in in the nation? It's not a whole lot different. But not only that, the people of the Corinthian church had so bought into the world's wisdom that if they did try to do something for God, it was done man's way instead of God's way. And they ignored the method and they ignored the message and they ignored the fact that God uses foolish men who are only willing to depend upon his power to do it. Well, next time we're going to get a little further, we'll get into 2 Corinthians. And I want you to know there's, there's hope. <laughs> Boy, Wayne, this has been a great message. I've <laughs> really excited my heart. <laughs> No, hey, I'm trying to tell you this. You know, in Habakkuk, did you see hope? In chapter 1, here's a prophet who didn't do anything much different. But in chapter 3, he completely changed. Well, you're going to see in, chapter, in the 2 Corinthians a different church. You're going to see people turn around. You're going to see the whole tone of what Paul says come about in a different way. Why? Because there's hope. But we've got to understand where we're wrong so that we can finally see where he is right. We don't have to walk after the flesh. We don't have to do it man's way. I don't have to dress a certain way or act a certain way so I can appeal to the world. Oh, no, no. God has always used his message, and God has always used his own method. Just share it. There's power in the Word of God. We need to come back to that, folks. We live in Corinth in the 21st century. 
Are we going to let God transform our lives and use the age-old proven method and the proven message to reach out into Albuquerque, or are we going to let Albuquerque reach over into us and we become just like the world and lose the distinction of the demonstration of his power and of his spirit? I did uh, two meetings with youth specialties. Youth specialties is for youth pastors of all denominations, and it's, wow, it's big. It's a lot of people. They divided the auditorium, about 5,000 pastors, and they divided it, and that was in San Diego. And then in Cincinnati, you had pretty much all in one auditorium. And they, I was a plenary speaker, Andy Stanley and some others were also speakers, and they asked me to do a seminar. And I thought, a seminar? I'm not... And so they said, would you come up with a title? And I, I just decided to approach this thing. I said, you know, I came up with the, with the title. We did the seven pillars, and I called it, Is Ministry Received or Is Ministry Achieved? And that's all I said. I figured nobody would show up. They won't even read that. It was standing room only in both places. In, in Cincinnati, I had probably 350, 400 people in that class. You couldn't even get them in the seats. And I just took 1 Corinthians 12 and showed them where the gifts came from, where the ministry comes from, who does it, who, who really is it that does it. Do we have to blend into the world to make it happen? And when I finished, you, know, you ever had an audience you look at and you think, wow, they're looking at me like a calf at a new gate. I didn't know if they had heard anything. So I said, well, thank you for coming. Bye. You know, and nobody would leave. They just sat there. And I said, we're through. And they just sat there. And finally, one young man stood up and said, can I say something? And I said, help yourself. He said, I started ministry this way. I understood that it was not about me. It was only about Christ. I understood that all the worldly ways to reach people has nothing to do because it takes superiority over the wisdom of God and the message of God. But he said, I got a committee in my church. It started driving me to get more numbers. And the more they drove me, the more I began to blend in what everybody else was doing. And he said, I got a group now, it's a mile wide, it's about a quarter of an inch deep. And he said, not only that, I've lost my joy, I've lost everything. I don't remember exactly everything he said. And he just began to sob, standing there in front of all of his peers, different denominations, sob. Man, I tried to comfort him the best I could, and finally he just sat down, and he's about 15 rows in front of me. Another one said, can I say something? And he stood up. Another one said, can I say something? And folks, we were there for one hour and 45 minutes when people finally dawned on them, God doesn't need their help. He just needs their yieldedness to him. And through the foolish method and through the foolish message, he will continue to do what he's done through centuries to change people's hearts. We don't want to be like Corinth, folks. We want to be those vessels that God can use. I look forward to 2 Corinthians. You say, wait, well, well, what has this message said to me? Well, have you ever had anybody attack you for what you stood for? That happened to Paul in Corinth. Have you ever had somebody attack you and your friends wouldn't stand around you to back you up when that happened? They kept their mouth shut? Oh, yeah. Have you ever been influenced by the gravity pull of this world to go back to what you used to be? Has numbers ever been a big deal with you? I mean, you can just, you can just walk through this message and find a place you can land but I just want to encourage your heart. We don't have to be that way. Thank God that he has a method and he has a message and still uses foolish men. Hey, you're looking at me. I'm looking at you. 
Hey, God bless us. Hey, do you realize we're the most powerful force on this earth when we're yielded to Christ and we walk out those doors? We don't need a thing this world does to appeal to them. All we need is we have everything we need. Turn him loose in your life, and we'll watch Albuquerque one to Christ. We don't, the church is not the place of evangelism, folks. The church is a place to be equipped to go out and evangelize. That's biblical. No place else can you find that equipping. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.